Welcome to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspective on the world of books, culture, and the arts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. In the fall of 2014, I had the pleasure of speaking to David Nichols about his new book, Us. The book is now in paperback, and the BBC plans to make a miniseries adapted by the playwright Nick Payne, so I thought I'd rebroadcast that conversation. From the New York Times to Entertainment Weekly, Us has been lauded by critics across the United States. Rave reviews have appeared in People, O Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Good Housekeeping, Time, and more. And now my conversation with David Nichols, author of the New York Times bestseller, One Day, which sold over 2 million copies and has been translated into 37 languages. David also wrote the screenplay for the 2010 film adaptation starring Jim Sturgis and Anne Hathaway. His current novel, Us, was long listed for the 2014 Man Booker Prize. Us follows one 54-year-old man, Douglas, as he tries to salvage his marriage to 52-year-old Connie and repair his relationship with his teenage son, Albie. David Nichols, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. There's a scene in the early part of the novel where Douglas and Connie are arguing over their son, Albie's decision to study fine art photography at university. And Connie is very supportive of the effort. Yes. And Douglas is less so. And they're in the kitchen, and they're, as you describe it, they're furiously putting away the cutlery. Yes. And Douglas tells Connie, loudly enough so that Albie, who's left the scene, can overhear, that, quote, life has limitations, and the sooner he faces up to this fact, the better off he'll be. Yes. It's quite harsh, isn't it? (laughs) Now, I think what happens next is very interesting because he reflects that he says this believing that he has his son's best interest at heart, though he realizes that hearing him say this, Albie will have caught all of my words and none of my intentions. Yes. And I think that this novel is full of the best intentions and some very painful and poignant and very, very funny words and actions. There's there's one point where Connie, just at the end of another sort of challenging exchange, she tells Douglas that he has an incredible capacity for missing the point. Yes. And I think that this is so true, this tug-pull that you feel with your family. So my very first question is, where did these characters come from? And, and how was Douglas, who I feel was so precisely drawn, how, how was he born? Well, um, often... Characters come uh, in opposition to what you've written before. And in the last book, One Day, I wrote a, a, a male-centric character who was incredibly self-confident, incredibly uh, open, um, almost too open and frank, uh, you know, often insensitive, but, but rather kind of cocky and, and arrogant and conceited. And I didn't want to write another man like that. Neither did I want to write a guy who was sort of promiscuous or who was struggling with marriage as a kind of prison. I wanted to write a man who loved his wife, uh, loved his wife extremely passionately, but wasn't able to say it. I wanted to write someone who was a little more emotionally withdrawn, a little more sensible uh, and structured in the way they lived their lives, and, and Douglas came out of that. Uh, also, I'd written a lot of 
uh, characters who are involved in the arts, a lot of actors and writers and students of literature and my other books, and I didn't want to write another arty uh, liberal. So I thought I'd write um, the opposite of what I know about, which is science. I, I know nothing about science. I used to feel uh, much like Douglas about science. When I was 15 or 16, I used to really love science and wanted to be a scientist, and then I got distracted by books and plays and films. But for a long time, I was passionate about science, and I wanted to rediscover some of that passion through the character of Douglas. So that's another element. Uh, another element was I wanted to write someone older than myself. And I think age, especially as a parent, brings anxiety. You know, you worry about your kid's future and how they're going to make a living in a world that seems ever-changing and uh, ever more difficult, ever more... Uh, uh, harder to, to get along, simply make a living. Uh, a very different world to the world that Douglas was born into. So I, I wanted to write some of that fear and anxiety of the future into a character, but also to make them sympathetic and to make it clear, as Douglas says, that you know nearly everything he says or does is motivated by care, by care and love and concern. It's just when you see that care and love and concern from a teenage boy's point of view, it can look like the opposite. It can look like bullying. It can look like conservatism. It can look like a, a sort of straight-laced, rather neurotic, pessimistic view of the world. Um, but being in Douglas's head allows you to, to reveal, as you say, the intentions, the positive intentions, and the, the love that lies behind actions which often seem quite brutal and harsh. That, I think, is why the novel was written from his point of view, because I wanted to, to make him a, a strange kind of hero. As you're talking, I'm thinking of the passage where he talks about when he first feels Albie sort of pulling away a little bit from him. Yeah. When Albie's still quite small, he, he has these fantasies, these grand fantasies of rescue. Yes. And to be able to make the grand gesture, to be forced to make the grand gesture, so when the snake bites him and he has to, yeah. you know, suck out the venom, mm. you know, I think that, in every parent, there's that love, but it's just his ability to display it and to communicate it yes. is more challenged. I think that love often manifests itself as do your homework, eat your greens, yes. Uh, yes. practice the piano. You know, it's yes. it's that actually, uh, I mean, I'm a parent now. I don't think I could have written this book or written this point of view eight years ago. I think I'd have felt rather differently about what good parenting is. Having access to Douglas's thoughts and feelings uh, does get him off the hook to a degree. He still can be insensitive and callous and thoughtless and a bit of a bully, but but you 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 sense, as you say, this this love that underlies it all. Absolutely. Now you've described it as a love story, as an examination of parenthood and marriage, but also as a road story. And yeah. I think the way that you know the family embarks on this grand tour of European cities despite the strain that they're under. And I think that they're different traveling styles. I think it moves the story along as, as much as anything else. Yes. It is very much an Englishman abroad, and that brings with it its own comedy, a, a certain cautiousness and a, uh, a certain anxiety, a desire for everything to be coordinated and uh, for there to be a very tight itinerary. That is all Douglas, not, not entirely me. So what, so what kind of traveler are you now? If I travel alone then I don't really believe in relaxing, and I, I really walk. I mean, I walk for vast distances in cities because I really want to see north and south, east and west. I want to see it all. And so I walk for four or five hours without a break and 
mark my route on a map and you know cross off all the things I feel I ought to see because I love cities. I really love cities. I always go straight to the the main art gallery and and try and eat in as many restaurants as I can. And this makes me a very bad person to go on holiday with because I I hate lying on a beach. That to mm-hmm. me is a kind of hell. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather be even in August. I'd much rather be in Madrid or Paris, even out of season. Now, I'm I'm curious because you move back and forth between writing books and writing for film and TV. Mm-hmm. When you're writing books, are you conscious of the of the three act structure that's that's often used in in film writing? I'm not, but I I think it probably does seep in onto the page. I mean, I think all of the books probably do have a kind of three act structure, and they are probably all quite you know in inverted commas well made. I'm aware that sometimes that makes them maybe feel a bit slick. I mean, this book is a series of short chapters, about 180 short chapters, and you could look at them as, as beats in a screenplay. But at the same time, I do want them to work primarily as books. You know, I want them to be good prose. And whilst there are certain elements that cross over, like a dialogue and scene structure and a three-act structure and little narrative hooks at the end of each chapter and that kind of thing, those those things which are a legacy of a screenwriting training, I do want the prose to be specific uh, to the form. And so I don't think of them as screenplays in disguise. I think of them as absolutely novels, first and foremost. Uh, and the great thing about writing a novel is is that you have all these extra tools. You know, no one's going to ask you about the budget. So you can go anywhere you want, and you can have it rain or snow, or you can have a tidal wave, it's fine. Uh, no one is particularly worried in the same way about length. You don't have to cram it into exactly 200 pages. I think there's less of a concern with the genre uh, in fiction. You know, the, the, often when you hear about a film, the first question is, what is it? Yeah. Is it an action thriller? Is it a romantic it comedy? Else, is, yeah. it, is it this film meets this film? Yeah. And fiction doesn't have that uh, those limitations in the same way. Of course, genre exists, and genre isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I don't, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about how the story is, you know, what, what box does it fit into? And most especially, you have access to a character's inner thoughts in a way that you don't in a film. In a film, that's that's pretty much the terrain of the director and the, the actor. Um, the only real way, the only real equivalent is voiceover, and voiceover in film is... It's a is, sign of trouble, usually. It's a sign of trouble, yes. Yeah. So that's the big thrill for a screenwriter when they write their first novel, is you're allowed to say he thinks he feels. You're allowed to say what the what's happening on the character's face. All of the things that in a screenplay would be crossed out by the actor. Now, you mentioned the way you treat um, chapters in this book, which yeah. uh, I love so much. But So there are exactly 180 chapters. Yes. They each have their distinct names, some yes. of which are so funny, so, yes. so humorous. And one of the things that I did, I, I, I didn't really notice it at the, at the beginning as I was so drawn in and I was reading, reading, and I, I caught on to it. And I, then I started to notice it. And then as soon as I finished the book, I went back and I looked at them again. Yeah. And I sort of got them on a whole different level. So, yes. so what prompted you to structure it that way? And how difficult was it to lay on the chapter titles? 
the chapter title, I, I, I'm pleased you said that. No one has, has mentioned that. I like the chapter titles too. But the, what's strange about the chapter titles is they're not Douglas's chapter titles. They're yes. mine. Oh, that's, that's, that's true, right. And yeah, it's the that... same with the epigraphs. There, there are quite a lot of epigraphs in the book. And again, you know, Douglas doesn't read novels. And, uh, and there are references in the book to, to Henry James and Thomas Hardy. <laughs> and that's probably and my anxiety. He just wants to read his war <laughs> histories and, and just be sort of left yes, alone there. He likes books about the Second World War. He certainly doesn't want to read Henry James. So I suppose it's a slightly stylized thing. It's a, it's a bit of a narrator. It's, it's me narrating the uh, book a little yes. and putting in these little ironic asides. But they're not they're, they're not Douglas's voice. You're absolutely right. They're they're little jokes often. Um, so I think it's a way of me, as a narrator, um, getting to make little jokes along the way. And did you layer them in while you were going or afterwards? Or uh, they were. We talked earlier about screenwriting, and in in screenwriting, often screenwriters talk about beats, and yes. and and with every single scene in the screenplay, someone will ask you, "What's it for?" And the headings, the chapter headings were, I suppose, little kind of aid memoir for me. You know, this is the one about this. And, you know, this. they all have a little purpose. They all have a little theme. And um, they all, uh, these 180 little vignettes add up to a, yes. a bigger story. I think also I wanted the short chapters to reflect the experience of travel, which is often episodic and disjointed. You know, it's the train trip, the hotel, the meal, the museum, mm-hmm. the, 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 the little um, chunks of time. Mm-hmm. And also the shorter chapters allowed me to quite nimbly knit backwards and forwards in time frames. That's right. Um, because one day, which had a similarly tight structure, was 21 chapters only, each chapter representing one day. And I, I love these frameworks. I find writing within a framework like that fun and easier. It gives me a, a sort of scaffolding in which to place the, the dialogue and the events. Well, I don't, I don't want to give away the ending by any means, Okay. but I did so very much love the title of the last chapter. <laughs> My second favorite was, I, I think it was Soft Mints for the chapter <laughs> where it was a very dramatic turning point, and yet the, the chapter title was Soft, Soft Mints. Mints. Yes. yes. So, well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, now I'm going to ask you a few um, writer-as-reader okay. questions, all right? Okay. So, what was the last book you spoke about with a friend, and what did you what did you say? Oh, goodness. I think it was uh, the last book I read, which was uh, Lila by Marilyn Robinson, which I thought was a very one. fine book and a very sort of austere and quite quite difficult book read I mean beautifully written is a, such a generic criticism isn't it I don't know what beautifully written means yeah. really I said what does it mean poetically written or precisely written it's a very kind of catch-all term but it was beautifully written I mean a very almost a kind of Old Testament uh, prose style and we talk I think we talked about uh, it being uh, interesting to read a book written from a explicitly Christian point of view that actually mm-hmm. that's not something you find much in in fiction where religion, uh, perhaps this is a generalization, but religion doesn't play a major part in in modern fiction. Now, I'm not particularly religious, but I enjoyed reading a book that was so steeped in religion, both in its style and its subject matter and themes. Mm-hmm. And if you were to recommend a book to a 13-year-old boy, so your toughest oh, customer, okay. your toughest customer out there. Well, the ones that really caught me uh, at that age were uh, 1984, uh, because um, I think Orwell is a very accessible writer. 
He writes about politics uh, brilliantly, but that book is also a great thriller. It's a great spy thriller, and uh, it's really gripping, and it has a lot of rather difficult ideas in it, but it's, it's, uh, it's violent, and it's pacey, and it's powerful and dramatic, and Orwell, in general, Orwell was the first great writer that I loved. I loved his essays as well. You know, as a 13-year-old, I found that kind of engagement with political ideas really inspiring, uh, but always accessible. And for similar reasons, I love Dickens, and I would probably uh, pass on Great Expectations, Great Expectations, yeah. Yeah, because again, you know, when I read that book, I must have been 13 and 14, and I thought he was writing about me. I thought, you know, all all the kind of foolish aspirations and the ridiculous, (laughs) unrequited love and, you know, the kind of um, the self deceit and the the, 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 the shallowness and you know, I, I, I found it um, absolutely spot on and I still think it's the best coming of age book I still think uh, partic- particularly for for boys I think I think perhaps I don't want to generalize but I think a lot of female readers have the same experience with either Jane Eyre or Pride and Prejudice or Wuthering Heights and I think for a lot of for a lot of male authors I know it's great expectations mm-hmm all right, and lastly, and you can have more than one, but okay. you're now forced on a desert island. Okay. Again, I could go on and on and on, but I would definitely pick uh, a big Dickens. Uh, Dickens tends to come in two sizes. Uh, the 500-page novels. Big like, and bigger, yeah. Big and bigger. There's Great Expectations and Oliver Twist, the little mini ones, but I would go for something like Bleak House or Our Mutual Friend, one of the great late thousand pages because there's so much in there and... I think I'd probably plump for Bleak House. I think that's a masterpiece. A great, great, great book. And then I'd try and smuggle in a few others. Uh, Tendrous and Night by Scott Fitzgerald, which I love. Uh, Franny and Zooey by J.D. Salinger, which which always makes me cry. It's a really beautiful, beautiful book, I think. And I'd probably grab one collection of short stories, maybe the short stories of John Cheever, the complete short stories of John Cheever, because I think he's a a wonderful writer. And there are some incredible stories in there. Yeah, we recorded many of those. Oh, really? We have Meryl Streep reading The Enormous Radio. Oh, wow. It was back in our old building <laughs> where you could stand on the uh, the other side of the glass and she gets to that point where he's yelling at her and you, you, you I started crying. I mean, she was so, she read it so beautifully. Well, that's a great story. That's a great yeah, story. There's so many wonderful st- stories in there and it was actually, you know, quite an influence on on this novel, on us, just because so many of them are about men, you know, apparently normal suburban men who are full of this longing and passion and desire and frustration and anger. And and I love this idea of a normal man who who has this stuff bubbling away and he doesn't quite know how to express it. And that was a big part of the inspiration for us. We'll leave you with an audiobook excerpt of us, performed by Olivier Award-winning actor David Hay. We'll hear two sections, a brief history of art, followed by The Philistine, written by David Nichols, read by David Hay. 39. A Brief History of Art Cave paintings Clay, then bronze statues Then, for about 1,400 years, people painted nothing except bold but rudimentary pictures of either the Virgin Mary and Child or the Crucifixion. 
Some bright spark realised that things in the distance looked smaller and the pictures of the Virgin Mary and the crucifixion improved hugely. Suddenly, everyone was very good at hands and facial expression and now the statues were in marble. Fat cherubs started appearing, while elsewhere there was a craze for domestic interiors and women standing by windows doing needlework. Dead pheasants and bunches of grapes and lots of detail. Cherubs disappeared, and instead there were fanciful, idealised landscapes. Then portraits of aristocrats on horseback, then huge canvases of battles and shipwrecks. Then it was back to women lying on sofas or getting out of the bath, murkier this time, less detailed. Then a great many wine bottles and apples. Then ballet dancers. Paintings developed a certain splodginess, critical term so that they barely resembled what they were meant to be. Someone signed a urinal and it all went mad. Neat squares of primary colour were followed by great blocks of emulsion, then soup cans, then someone picked up a video camera, someone else poured concrete, and the whole thing became hopelessly fractured into a kind of confusing, anything-goes-free-for-all. Forty, the Philistine. Such was my understanding of the history of art, its narrative, I ought to call it, until I met my wife. It is barely more sophisticated now, though I've picked up a few things along the way enough to get by, so that my art appreciation is almost on a par with my French. In the early days of our relationship, Connie was quite evangelical and bought me several books, second-hand editions, because we were in our happy but poor phase. Gombrich's The Story of Art was one, The Shock of the New another, given specifically to stop me tutting at modern art. Well, in the first flush of love, if someone tells you to read something, then you damn well read it, and they're terrific books, both of them though I've retained almost nothing of their contents. Perhaps I should have given Connie a basic primer in organic chemistry in return, but she never expressed an interest. Still, and I'd hesitate to confess this to Connie, though I think she knows, I've always felt a little at a loss with art, as if a piece of me is missing or was never there. I can appreciate draughtsmanship and deft choice of colour, I understand the social and historical context, but despite all my best efforts, my responses seem to me fundamentally shallow. I don't quite know what to say, or indeed feel. In portraiture, I look for people that I recognise. Look, it's Uncle Tony. Or for the faces of film stars. The Madame Tussaud School of Art Appreciation. In realist works, I look for detail. Look at the eyelashes, I say, in idiotic admiration at the fineness of the brush. Look at the reflection in his eye. In abstract art, I look for colour. I love the blue. As if the works of Rothko and Mondrian were little more than immense paint charts. I understand the superficial thrill of seeing the object in the flesh, so to speak, the sightseeing approach that lumps together the Grand Canyon, the Taj Mahal and the Sistine Chapel as items to tick off. I understand rarity and uniqueness, 
the how much school of criticism. And of course, I can see beauty. In my work, I see it all the time. The symmetrical cleavage of a fertilized frog egg, the stained stem cells of a zebrafish embryo or an electron micrograph of a rhabdopsis, the thale cress flower, and I can see the same forms and patterns, the same pleasing proportion and symmetry in paintings. But are they the right paintings? Do I have taste? Am I missing something? It's subjective, of course, and there are no right answers, but in a gallery I always have that feeling that the security guards are waiting to bundle me out of the door. My wife and son have few such insecurities. Certainly they weren't on display in the Italian gallery of the Louvre, where Albie and Connie were playing that game of seeing who could stare at a painting the longest. In this case, it was a fresco by Botticelli, cracked and faded and a lovely thing. But was there really so much to see? I waited while they drank it all in, the brush strokes, the interplay of light and dark, all the things I'd missed. Eventually, there was movement, and we strolled on past endless varieties of crucifixions and nativities, assorted martyrs whipped or pierced with arrows, a nonchalant saint with a sword embedded in his head, a scene of Mary, it's usually Mary, recoiling from an angel that had left a vapour trail behind him. Bracesco, apparently, I said. Jet-powered angel, as if it meant something. And we moved on. We passed a terrific battle scene by someone called Uccello. Soldiers clustered together into a black porcupine, the cracks and tears on the canvas adding to its grandeur in a strange kind of way. Then in the grand central corridor, my eye was drawn to a portrait of a bearded man whose face, on closer inspection, was composed of apples, mushrooms, grapes, a pumpkin, his nose a fat, ripe pear. L'automne by Archimboldo. Look, Albi, his face is made up of fruit and vegetables. Kitch, said Albi, presenting with his eyes the award for most banal remark ever made in an art gallery. Perhaps this was why those museum audio guides had become so popular, a reassuring voice in your ear telling you what to think and feel. Look to your left. Take note, please observe. How terrific it would be to carry that voice with you always, out of the museum and throughout all of life. We moved on. There was a lovely, fuzzy da Vinci, as if seen through smeary spectacles, of two women cooing over baby Jesus. But this didn't seem to interest Connie and Albie, and I couldn't help but notice that the more famous and familiar a work of art, the less time they spent looking at it. Certainly they had no interest in the Mona Lisa, the hard rock café of Renaissance art, hanging regally between signs that warned of pickpockets in an immense high-ceilinged room while other neglected canvases glared. Even early in the day, a crowd had gathered and were posing with that particular can't-believe-it smile that people have when their arm is around a celebrity's shoulder. Albie, Albie, can you take a photo of me and your mum? I said. 
but they'd already snubbed the Gioconda in favour of a small canvas on the other side of the Mona Lisa's wall, a murky Titian, in the shadows, both literally and figuratively, of two large, naked women giving a recorder concert. They stared and stared, and I wondered, what was I meant to take from this? What were they seeing? Once again, I was struck by the power of great art to make me feel excluded. Back in the main corridor, Albie paused before a little portrait by Piero della Francesca, then produced a small, expensive, leather-bound sketchbook and began copying it in charcoal, and my heart sank. There may well be a scientific paper to be written on why walking in an art gallery is so much more exhausting than, say, climbing Helvellyn. My guess is that it is something to do with the energy required to hold muscles in tension, combined with the mental exertion of wondering what to say. Whatever the reason, I sank exhausted onto the leather couch and watched Connie instead, the way her skirt stretched across her bottom, the movement of her hands, her neck as she raised her eyes to a canvas. That was art right there. That was beauty. She looked at me, smiled and crossed the room, touched her cheek against mine. Tired, old man? That'll be last night. Too much art. I wish I knew which ones to look at. Thumbs up, thumbs down. I wish they'd just point out the good ones. Maybe the good ones aren't the same for everyone. I'd never know what to say. You don't have to say anything. Just respond. Feel. She pulled me to my feet and we hiked on through this vast regal storeroom, past ancient glass, marble and bronze, into the French 19th century. Thank you for listening. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or a comment via our Facebook page, Harper Audio Presents. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.